Hello, and welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Melissa Yeo, and I'm one of the directors of the Society. Kindly sponsored by Baker McKenzie, the first SCL event of 2017, held on 8 March in Brisbane, drew a large crowd of professionals practicing in various disciplines in the construction industry. Raisa Conchin, partner of Watton and Carney, together with Elizabeth Conlin, senior associate of Watton and Carney, shared their views on how to manage the pre-allocation of risk in the era of proportionate liability. For those of you who could not attend, this episode records Raisa and Elizabeth's key lessons for the construction industry on this important topic. Be sure to subscribe to the Society of Construction Law podcast to be alerted when new episodes are available. We look forward to sharing further podcasts with you. I'm Melissa Yeo. Thanks for joining us. now hand you over to Lee Dethy, partner of Baker McKenzie, to introduce our speakers. Thank you, Melissa. I'm a, a construction partner here, and uh, welcome to Baker McKenzie. It really is our privilege to host this soccer event. We, we have a long relationship with soccer in our three offices on the eastern seaboard, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. Uh, in fact, one of our construction partners, Alex Hartman, is presenting next week on another soccer function, which I saw briefly flash up on the board, dealing with construction waste, which is quite a quite a different topic. Um, I have got no idea how to tweet, so I'm not going to be I'm not going to be doing any of that here. Now, my role is to um, introduce our speakers, and uh, they're sitting in front of me. Racer Conchin is a partner at Watton and Carney, and has practiced in the field of insurance and commercial litigation for over ten years. She also has a broad expertise in a number of specialist insurance areas, including DNO claims, professional indemnity involving professional services firms, builders, architects, accountants, and, and such like. Um, Elizabeth Conlon is a senior associate at Watton Carney, and her practice similarly focuses on, on PI, uh, directors and officers liability, as well as insurance advisory work. And before the, uh, the start here, I did ask a couple of very, very piercing insurance-related questions, which they answered for me. So look, I'm sure we'll all learn a lot from this, so please take it away. Hi everyone, my name's Raisa. Um, I thought, I think, if I press a button we should go to the next slide. Oh, how good's that? Okay. Um, Elizabeth and I have come here tonight to talk to you about proportionate liability and it's really a topic that has been done to death uh, since um, it was introduced in Queensland in 2004. I've been to countless proportionate liability seminars, I can't possibly go to another except for one that I am apparently presenting. Um, but today we'll be focusing on a specific part of the proportionate liability regime or, or a specific facet which is contracting out of proportionate liability and Queensland um, has, has a unique system in that contracting out of proportionate liability is expressly prohibited in our state, it is not, that's not the case in other states. Um, New South Wales, WA and Tasmania, it's expressly permitted and the other states and territories are silent. Um, and I guess the general view is that it's probably not allowed in those in those states either. Um, so we'll be focusing on the pre-allocation of risk between parties to a construction contract and, um, and, the, and I guess the uncertainty and the confusion that surrounds um, section seven of the CL, section seven sub three of the CLA in that context, i.e. when am I contracting out? Am I allowed to contract out? Um, 
and we'll also look at the insurance impl implications of um, of those of those issues. It's a pretty it's pretty hard going um, sometimes getting through this topic. There's quite a bit of content, so we've kept things quite high level and quite practical. And the aim of that is um, so that you guys get something useful out of today, and we can have some questions at the end. So I'll hand over to Elizabeth now. Thanks, Razor. Uh the concept of proportionate liability in Australia initially rose out of the movement to revise the law of joint and separate liability in the early 1990s um, and was later developed as a consequence of the insurance crisis uh, which resulted um, from the collapse of uh, the HIH insurance group. Prior to this, joint and several liability most commonly arose in claims for breach of contract and in tort. Any party found to be jointly and severally liable uh, was liable for the whole of the loss, irrespective of uh, the level of that party's responsibility. From a plaintiff's perspective, that was beneficial. The plaintiff could pursue the defendant with the deepest pockets and avoid uh, partial recoveries. Of course, a defendant could pursue another defendant for uh, an equitable or a statutory contribution, um, but that obviously didn't affect uh, the extent of that defendant's primary liability to the plaintiff. In the early 1990s, several corporate collapses resulted in an increase of professional negligence actions against accountants uh, arising out of their audits of these companies. Although other joint tort fees, including uh, company officers, were also pursued, uh, they were generally unable to meet their substantial liabilities to these companies. The accountants who had the, the benefit of substantial insurance cover therefore became the primary uh, targets for recovery. Uh, the joint and several liability um, borne by the accountants left their professional indemnity insurers in the unenviable position of having to uh, bear 100% of the company's loss, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the accountant's responsibility for those losses was, in most cases, very minimal. Those developments became the catalyst for an inquiry commissioned by the Commonwealth and New South Wales Attorneys General, um, conducted by Professor Jim Davis into the law of joint and several liability um, in the mid-1990s. And Professor Davis recommended that proportionate liability uh, replace joint and several liability for negligence resulting from property damage and economic loss. In other words, a wrongdoer's liability for loss and damage should be proportionate to the wrongdoer's uh, degree of fault. At this time, the concept of proportionate liability was very much in its embryonic stage. Nonetheless, it caught on in somewhat a, a limited fashion um, in the construction industry. Uh, the Victorian Building Act of 1993 introduced the first proportionate liability regime in Australia. Uh, that regime was limited to actions for damages for uh, loss or damage arising from defective building works uh, and other states and territories introduced similar proportionate liability regimes to, um, to deal with those claims. It was not, however, until the collapse of HIH in 2001 that proportionate liability as a concept really caught on in a more significant way. That collapse, coupled with a reduction in competition in the insurance market and generous awards uh, rendered in personal injury actions, resulted in a substantial increase in insurance premiums. And that crisis led to uh, a package of insurance-driven reforms to the law of negligence, in respect of which proportionate liability was a key component. The Queensland Civil Liability Act of 2003 forms part of those reforms. Um, that 
regime operates to restrict courts um, when awarding damages in respect of claims for economic loss and property damage uh, arising out of a breach of a duty of care to amounts which justly reflect each defendant's uh, responsibility. So the CLA, as Razor was mentioning, has a unique feature which has unfortunately created a great deal of uncertainty in terms of allocating risk between parties to, to construction contracts, um, has left gaps uh, in professional indemnity and general liability insurance, um, and has added to the complexity of defending um, actions, uh, defending actions for uh, uh, for the benefit of construction professionals and contractors, and this is the express prohibition uh, against contracting out of the proportionate liability regime under Section 7, subsection 3 of the Civil Liability Act. The proportionate liability legislation in New South Wales, Western Australia and Tasmania expressly permit um, contracting out. Um, of their respective proportionate liability regimes, the consequence being that parties can include uh, clauses in their construction contracts which stipulate that the, that the contract is not governed um, by the proportionate liability regime. The legislation in the ACT, the Northern Territory, South Australia and Victoria um, are silent, um, but the general view is that parties in those uh, states um, can't contract out of those regimes. There is an alternative view um, uh, to the extent that uh, that it couldn't have been the legislature's intention to substantially interfere with private contractual arrangements, um, allocating risk between parties um, where there is no express um, prohibition against contracting out. Section 7, th section 7 subsection 3 of the Civil Liability Act provides that the Act, other than Chapter 2, Part 2, which contains the, the proportionate liability regime, um, does not prevent parties to a contract from making express uh, provision for their rights, obligations um, and liabilities under the contract in relation to any matter to which the Act applies uh, and does not limit um, or otherwise affect the operation of the express provision. Apart from some very brief consideration by Justice North in the Queensland Supreme Court decision of Ireland and B&M outboard repairs, there's really been no comprehensive judicial comment um, regarding the scope of this prohibition. Two key approaches, though, um, have emerged in the commentary. The first being the literal um, approach, which has been, been adopted by Justice Chesterman and Jeremy Sweeney of counsel. Um, and they suggest that the prohibition has the effect that the proportionate, liability uh, the proportionate liability regime prevents parties to a contract from making express, express provision for their rights, obligations and liabilities under the contract. In our respectful submission, that's a, uh, an extreme view and is likely to produce um, some commercially very undesirable outcomes. The alternative position is the facilitative um, interpretation adopted by Ashley Jones. And Mr Jones says that the prohibition allows parties to make contractual provision subject to an exception. Um, it applies only insofar as the proportionate liability regime applies. Accordingly, the prohibition extends to the extent that the contractual term is inconsistent with the proportionate liability regime. 
in our experience, our limited experience as insurance lawyers, um, parties to construction contracts in Queensland seek to sort of circumvent a lot of this confusion by adopting certain strategies, uh, many of which I'll go on to discuss a bit later. Um, but for the time being, it's probably useful to highlight two key questions that um, we generally ask ourselves when uh, confronted with defending a claim brought pursuant to express contractual terms which seek to allocate um, risk between parties. The first question is, is the contractual claim capable of being characterised as an apportionable claim under the proportionate liability regime? Now, um, you'd think that the analysis, the analysis would end there. Um, the claim is either apportionable or it's not. However, uh, section 7, subsection 3 prevents parties from um, pursuing certain non-apportionable claims um, where the contractual um, terms pursuant to which the claim is brought um, breaches or offends uh, the prohibition. So hence we need to go on to the second question, um, do the terms of the contract um, pursuant to which the claim is, is brought um, offend um, the prohibition? So turning to the first of those two questions, whether contractual claims are capable of being characterised as apportionable claims. Um, by way of reminder, Section uh, 28, subsection 1A of the Civil Liability Act um, defines apportionable claim to include a claim a claim for economic loss or damage to property in an action for damages arising from a breach of a duty of care. Now, as we know, most in construction contracts contain strict contractual uh, obligations, the effect of which is that if the contractor fails to comply with those obligations, um, the contractor will be held to be liable for breach of contract. Whether that breach arose as a consequence of any breach of duty on the part of the contractor. Um, a good example of this is a warranty that the works will be fit for purpose. Um, a question therefore arises whether claims for breach of these sorts of contractual obligations will constitute an apportionable claim. If the answer to that is yes, um, then the operation of section 7 subsection 3 becomes irrelevant or academic. There are three distinct um, approaches to answering this question. It's not a, unfortunately, it's not an easy um, question to answer. Um, the first approach is that the proportionate liability regime only applies to a contractual claim where the relevant breach is a breach of a contractual duty, which is concurrent and coextensive uh, with a duty um, in tort. And that's generally consistent with the language of the Act um, and also the Queensland Supreme Court decision of Hobbs and Ho Hobbs Haulage and Sups, uh, Southside Proprietary Limited. The second approach um, is that the proportionate liability regime applies to um, claims for breach of a strict contractual obligation provided the act or omission which gives rise to the breach um, of contract factually arises from a breach of duty. Um, and that is supported um, primarily by the New South Wales Supreme Court decision of Reinhold and New South Wales Lotteries Corp. The third approach is that the proportionate liability regime does not apply to pure contractual claims at all, um, and that's supported by the Victorian decision of Lawley. Now, although we understand the merits um, of the second approach in that it prevents a plaintiff from uh, crafting its claim to get around the proportionate liability regime, we think it's gone too far in the other direction, uh, in that it seeks to effectively turn pure contractual claims into effectively negligence claims. 
um, we consider that the Queensland courts are more likely to, um, to adopt um, the first approach, as I said, because it's generally consistent with the wording of the Act. Um, and um, the first case on point in Queensland, um, Hobbs Haulage, uh, tends to adopt that approach. So turning to the second of the two questions, being that if the contractual claim is not capable of being characterised as an apportionable claim, do the terms of the contract pursuant to which um, the claim is brought offend section 7, subsection 3? And in order to address this question, we need to look at some of the common mechanisms used to allocate risk between parties to construction contracts. Now, as you know, there are plenty of mechanisms to do this, um, but I'm just going to focus on four. So the first um, being a clause spe uh, specifically contracting out of the proportionate liability regime. You might see this type of clause in contracts where the governing um, law of the contract is, for instance, New South Wales, um, but you almost certainly won't see it um, where the governing law um, is the law of Queensland, and for good reason, um, because this type of clause will almost certainly offend section 7, subsection 3. Uh, the second is a term pursuant to which um, parties agree to bear loss in specific proportions or to be joint, jointly and severally liable. And again, um, this type of term may also offend section 7, subsection 3, because it seeks to usurp the court's role in terms of apportioning liability um, for loss under the proportionate liability regime. Um, the, third, uh, the third mechanism is a term that nominates the governing law of the contract to be the law of a state which permits contracting out. Um, and these terms are often accompanied by indemnities and clauses specifically contracting out of the specific um, proportionate liability regime. These combination, this combination of terms is unlikely to offend section seven, subsection three, as long as the choice of law provision is upheld. So, for instance, um, if, if the construction project is based in Queensland, all of the um, parties are based in Queensland, and the only reason the parties choose the law of New South Wales is to circumvent the effect of the proportionate liability regime in Queensland, then the choice of law provision will probably be set aside and the contracting out provision um, will likely offend section 7, subsection 3. So the fourth mechanism and probably one of the more interesting um, are contractual um, indemnities and um, based on uh, the material that, that we've already presented, allocating risk by way of contractual indemnities is likely to be a fairly uncertain exercise in Queensland. The general conditions of contract under the Australian standards in, in this slide contain fault-based indemnities, the terms of which you're no doubt all aware. These indemnities, um, uh, these are indemnities given by party A to party B in respect of claims for um, loss or damage to property arising out of work done under the contract. Um, but the indemnity is reduced proportionately to the extent that the acts or omissions of party B uh, cause or contribute to the loss. So on their face, um, these indemnities uh, appear to be consistent with the rationale of the proportionate liability regime. However, when you consider them more closely and consider how they may be applied, they have the potential to offend both Section 7, Subsection 3 and also Section 32A of the Civil Liability Act, which I'll discuss in a minute. 
Section, se section 7, subsection 3 will generally be more relevant um, where you're challenging the validity of primary claims to enforce indemnities, um, where the purpose of those indemnities are to um, evade the operation of the proportionate liability regime. Section 32A, however, is more pertinent in terms of challenging cross-claims between defendants for contribution or indemnity, um, where such cross-claims are being made in respect of apportionable claims. So Section 32A provides that a concurrent wrongdoer against whom judgment is given in relation to an apportionable claim cannot be required to indemnify another concurrent wrongdoer. So it's axiomatic that where a judgment has not occurred, the provision shouldn't apply. However, if we look at a scenario in which these types of indemnities may become relevant, um, we can see that Section 32A is likely to to have um, is unlikely to have such a narrow application. So let's say um, that a property owner contracts with a head contractor to design and construct a commercial building with a couple of levels of basement. The head contractor subcontracts uh, an engineering firm to undertake design work uh, and a, con a construction company to complete construction. The design of the basement includes a retaining wall. The construction company constructs the retaining wall. During the course of construction, uh, a weather event occurs. An inundation of stormwater to the back of the wall causes the wall to fail, which in turn causes a failure of support of um, the land and damage to a building on an adjacent property. The adjacent property owner sues the head contractor, the engineering firm and the construction company in negligence, alleging that its loss and damage was the consequence of um, both design and construction of the wall. Now the contracts um, between the head contractor and the two subcontractors contain the type of fault-based indemnities that we've just been discussing in favour of the head contractor. The head contractor naturally will want to um, pursue cross-claims against the two subcontractors uh, to enforce those indemnities. Section 32A, however, is likely to eventually make um, those cross-claims unsustainable because each of the adjacent owners' um, claims are apportionable. Each of those claims are to be decided in accordance with the proportionate liability regime. If the court apportions liability between those parties and renders a judgment, then Section 32A effectively thwarts the cross-claims. Of course, if both apportionable and non-apportionable claims are advanced against the defendants, the CLA um, does not prevent the defendants from pursuing cross-claims um, for enforcement of indemnities and breach of strict contractual obligations in respect of the non-apportionable claims. Unfortunately, um, there's no easy answer um, and no easy way of determining whether an indemnity um, is likely to offend Section 7, subsection 3 or 32A of the Civil Liability Act and the extent to which those terms um, will ultimately be enforceable. Uh, we can take some heart, however, uh, that um, if such terms prove to be unenforceable, that there's nothing in the Civil Liability Act which prevents uh, the court from considering the apportionment of risk under the contract for the purposes of apportioning um, responsibility under the proportionate liability regime. Indeed, um, the Queensland Court of Appeal decision in Kim and Cole would suggest that the court is obliged to do so. So I'll now hand over to Razor to, to discuss the insurance implications of these issues. Insurance implications. So, um, typically in, a, in the construction space, we see two types of policies. 
Um, I'm not going to discuss things like contract works and project-specific insurance, but let's just start with the basics of a professional indemnity policy and a, and a general liability policy. Um, a professional indemnity policy is a specialist type of liability cover. It responds to claims against professionals. Um, and one of the triggers when you look at an insuring clause in a professional indemnity policy, you need a breach of a professional duty. Those policies are purchased by um, people from established disciplines um, or established professions, so engineers, designers, um, you know, town planners, surveyors, architects, quantity surveyors, where there's an established body of um, study or discipline behind their profession. Um, and the courts have, have pushed back on trying to expand um, the definition of a professional beyond that sphere. Uh, Chubb and Robinson is a case that, that Chubb ran to the, um, well, they appealed um, to the full court of the federal court last year. And they were trying to argue that project management is a recognised dis discipline and, and therefore should be a profession. And um, the court, the trial judge wasn't persuaded by that view, nor was, nor was the full court. So it really is quite a confined type of cover available to a certain type of professional. General liability, on the other hand, is what it, what it sounds like. It's, um, it's for general liability, so they don't need to be professional in nature. Um, in a construction sphere, I guess you would see your design engineer would purchase a PI policy, your builder would purchase a GL policy. GL policy is sometimes also referred to as a public liability policy. Um, a GL policy has a professional services exclusion on it. The reason for that is that if you are a design engineer and you purchase a PI policy, you will usually also purchase a GL policy. And um, the purpose of that exclusion is to make sure that the two covers sit neatly next to one, in, one another and that you don't have double, double the cover between the two policies. The other thing as well is that the other reason for that exclusion is let's assume a builder has a GL policy um, and they go beyond the scope of their building work and start giving design advice. Um, the insurer is not going to want to pick that up and they'll rely on that professional services exclusion. So that's generally the two policies that I'm guessing you guys are seeing in the market and that's why they're different and that's how they intersect. Um, Elizabeth spoke about the fact that the proportionate liability regime arose um, largely in response to an insurance crisis. Um, insurers were just, um, I guess, pushed to their limits when they're picking up, you know, if you've got an accountant that's 20% responsible for a loss and they're picking up 100%, um, that's, not, that's not sustainable or that, that at least was the position of the insurance industry. And so insurers are pretty keen right now to only insure insureds who are limiting their cover sorry, who are limiting their exposure to their, um, to their liabilities at common law. If an insured is desperately keen to go out into the market and assume liabilities above um, the common law, the general position is that the insurer doesn't want to pick those up, won't insure those, and the insurer will do it um, by virtue of a, an exclusion for assumed liability. And I'll show you what one of those looks like on the next slide. Um, the construction space is a little bit different. Um, so contractors and construction professionals are as a matter of course, in their day-to-day -day dealings required to enter into contracts, a lot of them have indemnities. Um, you wouldn't be able to sell a policy, I wouldn't have thought, to a builder um, that has an assumed liabilities exclusion in it. It would just be of not much value to them if their clients are requiring them to give contractual indemnities on a regular basis. So um, a, an assumed liability exclusion, it can take several different forms, but it's pretty stock standard. It's in almost every wording. So it will be in a GL, it will be in a PI, it's, um, it's pretty standard unless you move into kind of specific design and construct policies where that, that is just total, totally offensive and you'd never see that exclusion. But the exclusion is essentially 
we, the insurer, don't pick up any claim against the insured arising from any duty or obligation which you assume pursuant to a contract, such as a warranty, guarantee, indemnity, um, unless the insured would have incurred the liability in any event. So if what's alleged against you is that you breached a term of the contract um, requiring you to exercise reasonable skill and care, you're sweet. That exists at common law and so the insurer can't decline to cover you. If you agree to a contractual term that the work that you uh, perform will be fit for purpose, um, you're, you're going to run into some trouble on that exclusion because we acting for the insurer will say to you, we'll cover you to the extent that you're liable at common law, but because of that fitness for purpose, that fitness for purpose term, you've got that extra bit of exposure and we're not going to pick that up. And that's what we call the gap, kind of like the Medicare gap, slightly different. can be worth a lot more than the Medicare gap. Um, so I thought it might be helpful, I don't know if you've had any cases where you've had that, that gap between, I guess, the insured liability and that uninsured exposure. We do see it quite often. Um, so I'll just talk you through how an insurer deals with the gap and it's different, it's different in New South Wales or states where contracting out is permitted. Um, and then it's, um, Queensland is its own special beast. And I practised in Sydney for five or six years before I moved back to Brisbane. And I had to completely revise the way I was making indemnity decisions or the, the indemnity device, advice I was giving. So in New South Wales, where contracting out is permitted, um, an insured is entitled to expose themselves or they're able at law to expose themselves to a greater contractual liability. They're allowed to do that. You want to go around entering into contracts and picking up extra liabilities, be our guest, you're allowed. The law lets you do it. Um, so you're creating for yourself a gap. If you have one of those exclusions on your policy, that gap is uninsured. Um, we will decline cover. We will do it pretty quickly. You'll get a letter saying, you're covered for all the common law causes of action against you. You are not covered for that fancy extra thing that you gave to get the contract in the first place. Um, and that can dovetail into a whole bunch of um, tricky things like allocation of costs between insurer and insured. So the insurer has to pay for defence costs under the policy. How much of the defence costs do they have to pay for? 100%. Um, we have some insurers that will say, well, I think that if you hadn't signed up to that fitness for purpose warranty, you'd only be 60% liable. And therefore, I'm happy to carry 60% of the cost, but you need to chip in the other 40. And that number is pulled out of the sky. So we don't know what's going to happen at the level of a trial in two years, three years. Um, so there, there's, there's a certain amount of kind of good faith argy-bargy that happens between an insurer and insured to get to a place where we're comfortable with the allocation um, exercise. And sometimes you have an insurer that doesn't have any money and then the insurer just has to pay for everything and no one feels sorry for the insurer, ever. Um, so that's what happens in New South Wales. In Queensland it's really different though. In Queensland if someone gives, I have a case at the moment where um, a council contracted with um, a civil contractor to build a pipeline and um, there's something wrong with the pipeline, allegedly. Elizabeth told me to say allegedly. <laughs> the pipeline is allegedly rubbish. There's design problems, there's, also, there's rust, there's corrosion, there's wrong product, it's all terrible, very terrible, allegedly. Um, and, but um, my insured, so my, our client, gave um, a fitness for purpose warranty. So the council's suing them for negligence, for TPA, um, so misleading and deceptive conduct under the, the ACL or the TPA. And they've also got a claim against them pursuant to the warranty. If I was in New South Wales, I would say, hey, I'm happy to cover you for negligence and misleading and deceptive conduct, but you're not covered for that fitness for purpose warranty. But guess what? In Queensland, contracting out of proportional liability is forbidden. So I can't really rely on that fitness for purpose term against the insured to exclude cover 
because they'll just say to me, oh, that fitness for purpose term, you mean the unenforceable one? They're not allowed to contract out and therefore they can't possibly at law on its face, subject to all the uncertainty, have exposed themselves to a greater liability under the contract. So I can't rely on that exclusion against them. Does that make sense? Kind of. So in Queensland, um, insureds get a good run on indemnity because no insurer is sure what's going to happen at trial. Um, um, um. Coming back to what I was saying before, assume liability exclusions, sure they're in standard wordings, um, but a lot of construction professionals and contractors won't wear them. Um, they'll have a clever broker or they're sophisticated enough themselves to know that, um, that that type of exclusion in their policy is not consistent with how they make their bread and butter. Um, so they will push back on insurers and um, request different types of wordings or different types of policies. So um, I've written there, the insurance market has responded with amendment to standard wording. So that's where you just, you keep your contract as it is, you have a play with the wording or in expanding the insured risk. That's where you put your standard contract aside and your contract of insurance aside and you start to look for a more kind of tailored approach for that risk. Um, so one of the ways that you can amend the wording, one of the ways it's often done is delete the exclusion. So delete delete it so that simply you've got, you trigger the insuring clause, there's a claim against you for civil liability, bingo, you are covered, and it doesn't matter whether it's a contractual claim or a, or a tortious claim or um, the cover's there. The other way that it can be done is simply to pair back the exclusion, and that's done by um, amending the exclusion. The first part is, is the same, so the policy does not respond to any contractual liability to which you expose yourself, um, except if you entered into that contract in the usual course of your business. So as long as you're staying within the bounds of your usual business, you're safe and you can enter into any contracts you like um, because, because the exclusion's been paired back. If you're a geotechnical engineer and you start entering into contracts for um, town planning advice, I reckon you might run into some trouble there, but you probably wouldn't be in the policy, within the policy cover in the first place. Um, the other way that you can change the wording is leave the assumed liabilities exclusion in there and you start putting um, optional extensions onto your cover. When an insured applies for insurance with an insurer, they're given like a quotation form or a proposal form and there's usually a question there that says, do you want cover for contracting out of proportionate liability? And most people tick, yes, I do. And that would obviously be more in New South Wales, but insurers don't really tailor their proposal forms. They'll ask you that question you know, across any state. Um, if you tick yes, you will, you will get um, the first op optional extension. You won't get it for free. Um, there'll be an increase in your premium, but essentially it writes back in the cover exclu excluded by the assumed liability exclusion. It says, um, you know, that exclusion will not apply where the insured has agreed in writing with the principal to contract out of the proportionate liability regime. Now, you're not going to get an insured having that term in a, in a contract in Queensland, I wouldn't have thought, um, but you might see that in New South Wales and you might want to be covered for that. Um, the other optional extension that we see sometimes is a, a more generic, a more generic one. So you know that exclusion does not apply um, because we will indemnify you against any claim for civil liability which the insured incurs under an indemnity or a hold harmless term of a contract. And that's really useful for you know a builder who's entering into contracts on a day to day basis. They contain lots of indemnities. You would want an extension like that. There's also um, a specific extension for novated designs, so where a builder picks up liability for a design that was undertaken by somebody else, they do that pursuant to a deed of novation. Um, in the usual course with the exclusion there, the insurer would say, you're not covered for any claims relating to design, because the only reason you're on the hook for design is because you entered into a deed of novation. 
Um, but you can buy cover for that. You can have an optional extension that gives you cover for novated designs. Expanding the insured risk. So this is where we move away from, I guess, tailoring specific wordings of policies and we start to look at, do I need different cover altogether? And where we usually see this arise, and I'm, and I'm sure you will see it in your practice, is um, where clients are required to buy insurance for other parties under their construction policy. Um, so we see that we see that quite regularly. If that's the case, if you've got a client that's required to buy insurance for other people, it doesn't work to leave the policy in the name of the insured and fiddle with the wording. You need a new policy, a different type of policy. Um, so it requires fundamental changes to the cover. There's a few ways in which we see it happen. Um, you can add your your say you're, so say you're a head easy example head contractor required to indemnify principal. We see that all the time. You can add the name of your principal onto your policy. That can be done by endorsement during the policy year. Or if you've got, you know, if Sydney Water's a big client, you're contracting with them all the time, you might at inception of cover insist that Sydney Water's um, an insured and you'll pay for that privilege too. Um, the other way we can do it um, is, or the other way that people in the market do it is they add generic cover. So the policy covers the insured, but also all principals and all subcontractors of the insured. Really, really broad. Um, I've written sometimes blankets, so sometimes it just says we'll cover all subbies, all principals, full stop. Other times, and more often than not, it will say, we'll cover all subbies and principals to the extent that you are required to insure them. And that kind of involves a match between the policy and the construction contract. You've got to go look at the construction contract and work out what did my client, what insurance did my client agree to give because that's what they bought. And so the, the obligation to insure under the construction contract informs the extent of the cover under the insurance policy. You can't read, you can't read or make sense of one, one without the other. Um, and the other thing you can do is add speci specified contracts onto the policy. So, you know, we see that where you're dealing with, with project specific insurance, um, you might have an insured that's covered and underneath they list five or six different contracts associated with a particular infrastructure project or something like that. Uh, we've spoken a bit about, so gaps in cover created by the extent to which you assume extra obligations under a contract, but there's actually another way that you can expose yourself to uninsured risk um, that is not about assuming extra liability onto yourself, it's about releasing other parties from liability to you. So, for example, if, um, well, I guess first it's relevant to understand that uh, when an insurer, and, and I may be um, preaching to the converted here, but when an insurer indemnifies you for a claim, they acquire at law and usually pursuant to the policy wording, your rights of recovery against any other, any other third party. So they're, um, they're subrogated to your rights. They, I always find it useful to think of the insurer standing in the shoes of the insured. They basically become the insured. We get to prosecute claims in the name of the, name of the insured. We get to, um, yeah, we get to seek recovery, full recovery of the loss as if we were the insured. Um, and so you won't be surprised to learn that insurers aren't particularly taken with people that are giving away those rights at a contractual stage. Um, so, you know, one way you might see it is if your contract is with someone and you've provided a release against any future liability, that's a complete waiver of the right of recovery. Um, probably a less extreme way that we see it happen is that um, someone will cap their liability. So we had a matter a little while ago which um, the Australian Consulting Engineers standard terms were used and there was a limit of liability. So the, the engineer capped their liability effectively at $3 million, um, which is nice for the engineer. 
to be have, have that capped at $3 million. But when you receive a $20 million claim and you'd like to sue that engineer and you find out that, you know, four years ago the insured agreed to cap that liability at $3 million, the insurer will limit the indemnity available under the policy to $3 million because you've prejudiced its rights to get any more money out of that design engineer or actually out of that design engineer's PI cover. So how insurers protect their rights on this issue is they typically, typically put a subrogation clause within a policy saying, we'll indemnify you if you get sued because something one of your subbies did wrong, but only, but only to the extent that your recovery rights against that subby have been preserved. Um, so provided that the insured rights of recourse against such subcontractor or consultant are not waived or otherwise impaired. Um, and we do see people fall foul of that if you're agreeing to limit, limit financial liability. Um, on multi-party policies, so where I talk about, you know, if you've got a policy that covers the insured, all principals and all subbies, subrogation becomes less of an issue because the insurer can't go around suing its own insureds. Um, so um, often you see a, it's a waiver of subrogation clause on a policy where it's got multiple insureds, which says um, each party comprising the insured is considered a separate and distinct unit, i.e. they're each separate insureds and the insurer waives all rights of subrogation or action which they have or acquire against any such party. So if the principal receives a claim under that and that, po and that policy responds to it for, and it's for design, on one view, that principal should be able to sue the designer. But if the designer's on the same policy and the insurer's trying to take those recovery rights, they're of no use to that insurer because the designer, the principal, they're all on the same policy, you're picking it all up anyway. Um, that's, that's kind of it for gaps in cover. So understanding the types of policies um, that are there, the way in which you can create a gap for yourself if under a contract you're exposing yourself to greater liability. Understanding that in Queensland that's a bit fraught because are you even legally allowed to do that? Um, probably not if you look at section 7 subsection 3. Um, and I guess the key lessons, and it may be, it may be, there may not be lessons, they may be issues that you struggle with or grapple with every day of the week. But um, I guess when, you, when you're drafting a contract, are any contractual terms potentially unenforceable because they offend um, Section 7 Sub 3? Um, do any contractual terms have the effect of waiving or impairing your client's recovery rights? That's easy. They will stand out to you. You will know when you're effectively giving away recovery rights in a, in a contract. And what are the insurance implications? And the big one there is if you're settling, if you're dealing with a, um, a construction contract and your client is, um, is undertaking to procure insurance for one party or a bunch of other people, you'd probably want to be having a chat to the client or their insurance broker to make sure that they've got the insurance set up behind them. So making sure that they've got some of those specific policies that provide cover beyond just them. Um, back end, that's the litigation side of things, which is, I guess, where Elizabeth and I work mostly in that space. And they're the two questions that she outlined before. Whenever we receive a, a construction claim, we immediately look at are the claims against our client apportionable? Um, so for the allegedly defective pipeline, um, you know, we look at whether or not the, um, well, negligence was alleged against us, TPA was alleged against us, and also that fitness for purpose warranty. But we've written back to the other side and said that fitness for pur purpose warranty is unenforceable in Queensland. They've asked us for an authority, there is not one. We may just not respond to that letter. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, so there's no authority on it. So we've just asserted it. Well, your fitness for purpose um, term, I understand that it seems very useful to you, but we say it's unenforceable. And it's wonderful for us because we get to say, well, you go sue the designer because all the claims against us we say are apportionable. You go sue the designer. 
And the council's a bit stuck because um, they kind of feel like that fitness for purpose warranty against us should, should get them some traction with us. But because of Section 7, I guess they don't know. And so they've had to sue the designer. Great news for us. Another policy, another policy on the hook. Um, and the second, yeah, the second question is, oh, well, it's the same question. Are any non-apportionable claims based on a contractual term which offends Section 3? So there, that fitness for purpose warranty, um, I think it does offend Section 7. And so I'm saying it's not, not enforceable.